Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we, last week was an introduction to the Ten Commandments, and we didn't even get to the Ten Commandments. And so what I want to do tonight is have you turn to Exodus chapter 20. And Risa can't answer this question because she was in staff meeting. And I asked this question in staff meeting. Uh, Risa's our custodian. So here's the question I always ask to see if you can pass the test on the, first, on the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments start? That's number five. How do the Ten Commandments start? Most people start with the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods. That's the first commandment, but that's not how the Ten Commandments start. So it's very, very important that we understand the preface or the introduction to the Ten Commandments. We often think that the commandments start first with commandments, but actually... God is going to introduce the Ten Commandments with the gospel. Okay? It's very, very important we get the order correct. Gospel, or if you want to put grace, the gospel of grace comes before the giving of the law or the commands. It's very, very important. I'm going to explain why that's important. But you will see it right here when we start Exodus 20. Okay? So let's read, before we get to the Ten Commandments, the actual listing of the commandments, let's start in Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, boom, Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me, and then on through the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, let's just look at verses one and two because it's very, very, very important that this comes first. One thing we have to say, and I think Glenn alluded to this, God, what's, what has it start? God spoke all these words. We have to remember something about the Ten Commandments for a moment. Remember last week we talked about the different types of law? You got civil law, which is the, the laws that govern how people relate to each other as far as like lawsuits and things like that. You have the ceremonial law, washings and things like that. And then you have the moral law. Well, here's something that we need to understand about the Ten Commandments. They are unalterable. They don't change. You can't mess with them because they were delivered by God's own mouth. And they were written down on tablets of, sh of stone. And if you remember, God wrote it with his own finger, which is not said of anything else. So there's something very, very special about God speaking his word. So keep your finger in Exodus and turn over to Deuteronomy because there is a lot, not, not predominant, but there's a lot of similarities between Exodus and Deuteronomy. This is just a side note. Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means 
the second giving of the law. Why did the law have to be given a second time? If you remember biblical history, what happened to the first generation of Exodus? They weren't very obedient, okay. They died off in the wilderness, remember? 40 years, and then there was a new generation. So you have the kids of that first generation poised on the plains of Moab, getting ready to cross over into the promised land, and Moses gives them the law a second time. So you actually had the Ten Commandments twice. You had the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and you also had the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy. So there's a lot of repeat. But let's just read here Deuteronomy 4, 10 through 14. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. Then you go down to verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then go down to verses 33 and 36. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you've heard and still live? Or has any God, lowercase, ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Over and over again, what does God say? I'm speaking. I'm speaking. I'm allowing you to hear me. You can't see me. You're going to see fire. You're going to see smoke. You're not going to see me because I'm an invisible God, but you're going to hear me. You're going to hear me speak. Nehemiah 9.13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Now, why is it important that God has spoken? Not only has God spoken, but he had it written down for perpetuity, for, for, for all time. So, if God speaks... If God is a speaking God and God speaks His words and those words are written down, what's the obligation for us as His people? Okay, over and over and over again, how many times does the Bible say, listen? Okay, listen. So, Exodus 24, 12. Let's go there real quick. So God has spoken, but not only has God spoken, but God 
also commanded that his words be written down. Now, why would God have his words written down? Can't forget them. They're preserved. They can be given so people can look at them. Okay, so Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Who's written it? Did God write or did Moses write it? Yes, both. Okay. It comes from the mind of God. Okay, Exodus 31, 18. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, don't ask me how God did that. How did God write with his finger on tablets of stone? I don't know. But he did. Okay? Deuteronomy, let's go back to Deuteronomy. I'm not going to make you flip over all night tonight, but I figured Deuteronomy and Exodus are close to each other. Deuteronomy 5:22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And then Deuteronomy 9:10. Deuteronomy 9:10. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. There's something special about the Ten Commandments because over and over again it refers to how God spoke it with fire and with smoke and on the mountain. And not only did He speak it, but He had it written down. And it also references that God wrote it with His own finger for our instruction. So if God took the time to speak and God took the time to have that written down for our instruction, you guys answered earlier, what should be our attitude toward God's Word? We must listen with a predetermination to joyfully obey. Now, what's the difference there? Can you just listen to God's Word? What's the difference between listening and listening with a predetermination to joyfully obey? Okay. When God speaks, you have the attitude that whatever God says to me in His Word, I'm going to do it and do it with joy. It's not going to be begrudging. I'm not going to think He's doing this to cramp my style or to stifle my fun or, or, to, or to somehow um, not let me enjoy life. He's giving it to us for a blessing. So we should have the attitude that the psalmist has in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It revives the soul. And then Psalm 119, if you go, that's the longest book in the Bible. It's all about God's Word, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Can you say that about God's Word? It would be like in today's vernacular, reading God's Word is better to me than winning the lottery. 
Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I want to think about it. I want to meditate it. I, I love it. I love God's word. I love his commandments. Psalm 119, 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Okay. So let's go back to Exodus 20. God speaks. And God has this word written down. And so the preface here, before we even get to the Ten Commandments proper, this preface, this introductory statement has two truths. Here's truth number one that God gives us. Read it for yourself in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Look in your Bibles and tell me, the word Lord, is it in all caps in your Bible? It should be. Okay, it's in all caps, right? L-O-R-D. When you see the word L-O-R-D in all caps in your Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word for Yahweh, which is a derivative of I am. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. Now, the word Lord or I am or Yahweh, it means more than God's just saying, I exist. It really means, if you look at the way the Hebrew word roots together, I cause things to be in existence and I sustain things to be. Now, let me just ask you a question. Can we as humans say emphatically, I am? I can say, I am Sean. That's true, right? I am tall, relatively, compared to Shaq, not so much. I have blonde hair. I have blue eyes. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I am blank, blank, blank. Okay, you can add those descriptors to your life. But can I, as a human, say, I am, and I cause things to be, and I keep things going because I am the self-sufficient, autonomous ruler of the universe. I mean, I could say that, but I'd be lying to myself and living a, living a foolish delusion. Who's the only person that has the right to say that? The Lord. Okay? So Yahweh, or Lord, or I am, you can think of it this way. It's the God who has no needs. I get nervous when I hear people say, God needs something. Does God have any needs? God has no needs. He's self-existent. He's self-glorifying. He's, he's, he's self-satisfying. Listen to some of these passages of Scripture that talk about God being the great I am. Okay, now, now let's just kind of keep this before you. Before we get to the commandments, God is telling them who He is. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God, the God who has no needs, the God who is sovereign. J Job 26, 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of His ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of Him, but the thunder of His power, who can understand? When it's talking about the outskirts of His ways, Job's talking about space, looking up at the sky. It's just a, just a small picture of who God is. Job 41, 11, who is first given to me that I should repay him? 
Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Can we ever pay back God? No. Psalm 102, 25-27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Acts 17. We'll come back to this later on tonight. Hopefully we'll get there. But in Acts 17, 24-25, Paul is preaching a sermon on Mars Hill to a bunch of philosophers. And he says this, The God who made the world... And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's like, listen, it's not as if God has any needs. He's the one that's given you life. You don't, you don't add anything to God. And then you've got the end of Romans chapter 11. Verses 34 through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. So when God here says, I am the Lord, your God, he's reminding Israel, I am sovereign. I have no needs. I'm your creator, I'm your Lord, I'm the self-existent one. And so when we think of God as Yahweh or the Lord or the great I am, we should worship him in prayer as the self-existing one who has no needs but can meet every one of our needs. And does God change? What would, what would happen if God changed? He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be God. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So before God gives the children of Israel law, commandments, God is giving them a promise in who He is. He's like, I am your covenant God. I'm the great I am. I'm the self-existing God. I'm the Lord, your God. Notice He doesn't say, I am the Lord, a God. I am the Lord, a distant God. Look, look, at, look at very carefully the wording. I am the Lord, whose God? Your God. Because I've entered, in, entered into a covenant with you as your Lord. So that's truth number one. God says, I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord. I, I, I'm the one that has no needs. I'm sovereign. But here's truth number two. What's the second thing he says there? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here's truth number two. Our Lord has brought us, should be out, about of the Our Lord has brought us out of the land of Egypt. And you may say, well, okay, I was never in Egypt. What was Egypt to Israel? Okay, let's just talk. What was Egypt? There's two things that described Egypt. If you can think of two things, that, and that was one of them. So Egypt. Now, for Israel, the immediate context, God has just delivered them out of Egypt. And it says there, a qualifier, out of the house of slavery. So we know that, number one, something about Egypt, it was a place of slavery. Okay, let's just read some passages here. Deuteronomy 4.20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, 
to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. Iron furnace, harsh taskmasters, okay? Israel's deliverance from physical bondage by means of a Passover lamb is symbolic of our deliverance from spiritual bondage to sin and Satan by means of Jesus' Passover lamb death on the cross. Now, the other thing that Egypt represents besides slavery is paganism. They had thousands of different gods that they worshipped. So when God says, I'm rescuing you, I brought you out of the house of slavery, God is talking, this, this is salvation language, okay? This is salvation by grace. God is saying, listen, you were steeped in slavery. You were steeped in paganism. I delivered you from that by means of a lamb and blood. So what has God done for us? When we become Christians, does God rescue us from slavery to sin and paganism? You bet. Romans addresses this. Romans talks about how sin was a master. Sin was like a slave master to us. Romans 6, 14 through 17. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you, know that if you, present your, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Thanks be to God that you were what? What were we once? What does that text say? We were once slaves to what? Sin. And God rescued us out of that. He res- you can spiritually say God has rescued you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Egypt to the Christian is representative of spiritual bondage and paganism and lostness. Everything that stands opposed to God. Now, also, in some of that paganism and in some of that sin, Satan plays a role. What's behind all of this or who's behind a lot of this? Satan, okay? 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, Even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil. What's he done? He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so in our unregenerate state as an unbeliever, what does Paul describe our life as? We're blinded to what? The glory of Christ by Satan. Okay? Paul gives some instructions to Timothy about how to deal with people that were being ungodly. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and do what? Escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What is a lost person in? They're in the snare of the devil being captured by the devil. 
What has Christ done in our salvation? Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's just read verses 1 and 2 again. God spoke all these words. God is a speaking God. He had it written down. And since God is speaking, we are meant to listen. And what does God start with? Number one, I am the Lord your God. Number two, I've delivered you by salvation out of slavery and paganism. So here's the bottom line before we even start the Ten Commandments, actually the commandments themselves. Before we begin to understand the Ten Commandments as our moral duty as Christians we first need to understand what God alone has done for us in the gospel. And let me just list some things God has done for us in the gospel that parallel what He did to Israel in the Exodus. He has entered into a covenant of steadfast love that has said with His children. Has God entered into a covenant of love with us? You bet. He has delivered us from idolatry to serve the living God. He has rescued us from spiritual bondage to sin and Satan by means of Christ's death on the cross. In the new covenant, He's written the law on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey. As regenerate believers, we now have the ability and the desire to obey the Ten Commandments, not to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude for what God has already accomplished in our salvation. And so last week we ended on the scripture, but I want to give it to you again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. Okay, verses 8 and 10 talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What does verse 10 tell us? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What comes first, verse 10 or verses 8 and 9? Verses 8 and 9, right? What if you get the order reversed? If you get the order reversed, you do good works in order to get God to save you. Is that the gospel? No. What's the gospel? God alone has saved you through grace, and it's by faith, so that you will have a changed heart and be empowered to do good works. So grace comes before law. Gospel comes before the Ten Commandments. And it's right here in Exodus, okay? It's very, very important. Before God gives them the commandments, He reminds them of His identity as the Lord, and He also tells them that they've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and a Passover lamb alone, okay? For them. For us, we can say we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay? Makes sense? So, before we get to the first, we're going to just deal with the first commandment tonight. We may not get all the way through. Because it's the first commandment I think is the most important. It flow, the first, understanding the first commandment helps you understand all the nine other ones. Okay? But let's understand some things about the nature of the law. When I say law again, it's just shorthand for the Ten Commandments. What are some things, before we read the Ten Commandments and understand them, what do we need to understand about them? One thing we need to understand is that these Ten Commandments cover both outward action and the interior of the heart. Okay? 
Is killing an outward action? Is murdering an outward action? But where does it start? Is adultery an outward action? But where does it start? Is stealing an outward action? Yes, but where does it start? Now, here's a trick question. Is coveting an outward action? No. Coveting is not an outward action. Coveting is an attitude. So the last of the commandments is actually not an outward action. It's an attitude of the heart. So Paul says in Romans 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. The problem is not with God's law. It's with us in our sinful hearts. The law is spiritual. So it not only addresses outward actions, which we often, when we often talk about the law, we lower it. We lower the expectations of the law because we only want to focus on, hey, I'm doing good. I haven't done the outward action. But go read the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus do with that? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we need to understand when we look at these Ten Commandments, yes, murder is an outward action. All these things are somewhat of an outward action, but they flow from a heart. So so there needs to be a heart aspect related to the Ten Commandments as well as just the bear don't do it. Okay, And also, number two, the law has both a positive and a negative aspect. Some of... The commandments are in the negatives. You shall not. Some are in the positives. So if you have a positive, it assumes there's a negative. If you have a negative, it assumes the positive. So here's the way I've worded it. Where a sin is forbidden, the corresponding duty is required. It's implied. Where a duty is required, the corresponding sin is forbidden. So if something's not supposed to happen, it's implied that something positive is supposed to happen. If something positive is supposed to happen, it's implied that the negative is not supposed to happen. Does that make sense? So it's kind of inherent in the, in the law. Okay? Are you guys ready for the first commandment? We're finally there. It's taking forever to get to the Ten Commandments. Verse 3, what is the first commandment? You, singular, not talking about y'all, it's you shall have no other gods before me. Some translations, do some of your translations say besides me? Now, let's just talk about the context. What did God just say right before this? What's in verse 2? We spent some time on this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of where? Egypt. How long had they been in Egypt? Israel had spent four hundred years in Egypt and they were surrounded by pagan idolatry with multiple gods not just one god is that going to shape your worldview if your entire culture is wrapped up in multiple pagan gods is that going to color how you view life that's what they were living in Egypt that paganism in Egypt Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 7 And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
All right. We are going to come back to Exodus 20, but I want to take us to the New Testament because I want to talk about two issues that help shape our understanding of this first commandment. So let's go to Acts chapter 17. Okay? Acts chapter 17. Paul has kind of left his missionary traveling partners and he's gone off to Athens to wait for them. And he starts walking around the city looking at... What do you guys know about Athens just even today? What, what's in Athens? I, yeah, <laughs> Athens was the center of Greek civilization back at that time. The Parthenon. You guys remember the Pantheon of Gods? Zeus, Apollo. You guys ever see Clash of the Titans or Hercules or any of those movies that they have? You know, Zeus, Aphrodite, Hermes, all the Greek gods and goddesses. Well, that's, that's the world Paul's walking into. But it's very interesting. Let's pick up in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's just stop right there. What's the city full of? And how's, what's Paul's response to that? He's provoked. He's provoked in spirit. That could mean he's, he's angered, he's burdened, he's, he's disturbed. He's walking around and seeing all this idolatry and it kind of burns him up. So, verse 17, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So, all over the city, Paul's there. Wherever he gets a hearing, I'm going to go talk to people about Jesus. And so it's a place called the Areopagus, which is basically a place where a bunch of ideas were bantered around. And listen to what they're saying. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? He's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. They're thinking, who, who's, who, what are you talking about? He's, this is not Zeus. This is not Apollo. He's bringing in, is this some God we don't know about? Some foreign deity? He's talking about this Jesus guy. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's the area where it's, it's called Mars Hill. It's a place, it would be like today's modern. Okay, so if you can think of, I'm trying to think of the only place in Sterling that the Areopagus would be similar to would be either like at Sugar Beet Days or the fair, when the entire town gathers at one place and, and, and everybody's there kind of selling stuff and, and you, you kind of, you're there and you set up your tent and you start preaching because you want to get as many people as you can. Um, so it's, it's, it's an opportunity for him to engage the, the city. Now, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like our culture, right? They're spiritual. They're, hey, we want to hear what you have to say. Verse 25. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world 
and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So what's going on here? They get all these gods, all these idols, and Paul walks by and says, this is interesting. You got an idol here to an unknown God. What's this all about? Well, here's the issue for these Greek people. They had a God for everything. They had a God for fertility. They had a God for war. They had a God for public speaking. They had a God for their crops. And just in case they missed something, they had a God to cover all their bases because the gods got mad at them if they didn't do their religious rituals. And so the unknown God is basically to cover all their bases. So Paul plays off that and says, listen, let me tell you who the true God is. And what does Paul begin to do? Starts all the way back at creation. There's a God. He's created you. He has no needs. He goes on and tells him, he goes, listen, this is all part of your imagination. This is all ignorance. This is idolatry. And then what does he say? God is commanding you to repent because he's fixing a day where you're going to be judged by Jesus rising from the dead. So he presents the gospel to them. So he starts with this whole idolatry and says, listen, in a, in a sense, you could say what Paul does is, is he expounds upon the first commandment and focuses right upon Jesus. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. How many gods did they have? So many that they had to have an unknown God. And Paul comes up and says, listen, here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he expounds upon that and then leads it straight to Christ. Now, how do the people respond? Very interesting. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This is crazy. This is stupid, you idiot, Paul. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. Well, this is kind of curious. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others. So a few people actually came to faith in Christ. So Paul, in his day, had to address idolatry all over the place. Let me just stop and ask you a question. In our culture today, is it any different than Paul's day? We may not have Zeus and Aphrodite and these unknown gods, but what do people worship idols today? Do people make up things in their imaginations? Okay. Do people break the first commandment? Okay. Why do people break the first commandment? Let's go to Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Paul is going to tell us the root of idolatry. Because ultimately, breaking the first commandment is, is... The first and second commandments deal with... The first commandment deals with who we worship. The second commandment deals with how we worship. 
They're linked. The first and second commandment are linked. The first one focuses more on who God is. The second commandment is like how you worship that God. Okay? But let's look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Romans 1, 18 and following. This is a very important passage of Scripture that you should spend some time in because it explains everything. You want to know why the world's the way it is? This explains everything, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying it puts things in perspective. Verse 18, Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you have a physical Bible, underline, highlight, or do something with that word suppress. What does suppress mean? Push it down to get it out. What lost people are doing today is when the truth is confronting them, what are they saying? I don't want to be confronted with that truth. I'm going to suppress it. Now, here's the thing. Do they know it's truth? Yes. Because they're created in God's image and God has given them a conscience. And Paul goes on to say that they suppress that. Let's keep going on and see what Paul says. But suppress is a very important word there. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. What does Paul say? Every, God has made Himself known in creation. You can look up at a sunset and you can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you can be on a snow peaked mountain and you can be out riding a wave and you can be thinking to yourself, there's a creator out there. God has made himself known. But what are they doing with their knowledge of God being creator? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish minds were darkened. You are seeing that today. Darkened, minds and fut darkened hearts and futile minds. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Underline, circle, highlight the word exchange. That's another important word there. What does it mean to exchange? What are they exchanging? They're exchanging what? The glory of God for created things. So here's what Paul's saying. Listen, God is worthy to be worshipped. God is worthy to be praised. God has made Himself known. When you see a sunset, when you look through the Hubble telescope, you intuitively know that there's a God out there. But instead of worshipping that God, you suppress the truth. And not only do you suppress it, you exchange the glory of God and you trade that glory in for something of creation. Whether it's something that you've created out of your own mind or it's an animal or a reptile or a bird, you've become an idolater. So... Idolatry is at its heart exchanging the glory of God for created things. And then verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth. 
Two exchanges in this passage of Scripture. They exchange the glory of God. They exchange the truth of God. And they suppress that and they become idolaters. So, all human beings have this propensity to become idolaters. Yes, Dick. I have a question about this passage. Yes. It's kind of always bothered me. Okay, I hope I can answer. Is Paul speaking here about Adam and Eve in the garden and their fall, or is he speaking about something that's happening continually from generation to generation throughout mankind's history? That's a great question. Let me see if I can answer it with the Greek grammar. I don't think he's talking about Adam and Eve. I think he could be. I think this is a result of the fall. But I think when you look at verse 18, the wrath of God, present tense, is revealed from heaven. So I think it's a present tense reality of what's going on right now of people who are doing this. And when we say God's wrath, the wrath that's, that's given here is a giving over, not, not an active wrath where he like brings down Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, in a sense, though, Dick, you could say that Adam and Eve committed this sin. In a sense, because they did exchange the truth of God for a lie that Satan told them. But I don't think God gave them over because I think they willfully sinned and they brought the consequences of sin into the world. So I think this particular passage of Scripture is talking about post-fall world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Does that make sense or does that make, confuse you or answer the no. question? Or? Yes. We're born without any real knowledge of God. Yes. Or understanding of the truth. And that's our natural state. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is generational. From one generation to the next. It's not, in history, it's not something that happens one time. Right. I don't think you can make the case saying this was what Paul was speaking to that particular generation and it doesn't happen today and this was a specific case in point. Um, because he lists, if you, if you go on to read the rest of the passage, he lists a bunch of different sins yeah, well, that are systemic. The, yeah. the giving over part. And to me, mankind. Right. All mankind. <coughs> yes, all mankind, because we're born totally depraved, Given, given, without sovereign regeneration and grace, mankind are going to give over to the fullness of their sin to varying degrees. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be as sinful as they can be, but it means that without God doing some type of intervening grace, all humans are destined to be given over to that depravity because it's their nature to do so. And the only thing they can overcome that is God's sovereign grace and regeneration to bring about that new heart. Is that kind of what you're trying to say, Dick? I'm just trying to get a better understanding. Okay. So idolatry is an exchanging of God's glory for idols. It's an exchanging of God's truth. And, and Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no 
understanding. That's what we're trying. Idolatry is basically saying, I want my own God. Now, go back to Exodus for a moment. Let's go back to Exodus. So we, we've looked at the New Testament. Idolatry. And you may be asking a question, because I always had this question when I was a kid. And I think Aiden had this question when we did catechism with him as a little boy. Because part of the going through the catechism is you go through the Ten Commandments. I, you shall have no other gods before me. Question. If God alone is God, why does he mention other gods as if they exist at all? Has anybody ever had that question? Isn't it just assumed that God is God? Why would he have to say, you shall have no other gods before me? Because that assumes that there are other gods. Okay? But it's lowercase g. Okay? Mm-hmm. I think, this is just off the cuff, but as I've thought about this, I think because of what Dick said, and he reminded us of, because humans are born with a sin nature, we're always going to gravitate towards other gods anyway. We're never going to actually put God supreme as our ultimate treasure. We're always going to want to put other things in His place. This is a heart issue. Yes. It's what you're talking about. Because you don't have to have an image sure. in the shape of some Buddha box or, or yeah. whatever to worship. Yeah. You know, I saw a real nice Corvette today. I would <laughs> really love to have that Corvette. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'll never own a Corvette. But that could easily be my God. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. And so let's just keep moving through this. Uh, oh, go ahead, Bart. Mm-hmm. They were there were all kinds yes. of false gods there. Yes, it was not the God of Abraham. Yes, it wasn't the true God. No, and they brought him out. Yep, with them. Yes, and they kept him Forever. for most of their <laughs> most of their history. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's look at some other scriptures to maybe bring light into this. Okay, um, the the wording maybe can throw some people off. Well, if God's only God, why is He saying there's no other gods before Me? Um, Isaiah forty five twenty one. Declare and present your case. God's talking to the idols that can't speak here, okay? Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So God's like, listen, you, these are false gods. These are so-called gods. These are substitutes. These aren't, I am the only God. But you have a propensity to, to make substitute gods. Yeah, yeah. The reason they are false gods is because we make we, we created we created them in our own hearts. Yeah. We create these gods. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they they they, they in a sense don't exist unless we but somehow we give worship, them yeah. worship them or give them credence or yeah, yeah, give them the. Which is still happening today. Oh yes. In all these other countries. Oh yes. And even in the United States. Oh, and oh yes. But if you go to any foreign country. Yeah, when well, we go to India, yeah. They're there. They're, they're still sacrificing and yeah. taking from their families. And sure. 
food to idols. Yeah, and, and see, the, here's the thing. When we go to India, it's easy to see idolatry because you see temples all over the place and you see people doing puja and all that. You know, they're, they're, you can see it. In America, we're slick and sly in how we worship idols. Yeah, drugs. Or whatever. I yes. Mean, okay. How many people in America worship with the idol of science? Okay. Right. Um, and we'll talk about that later on yeah, if we get to but, it. Uh, you know, and, you know, and in antiquity, you know, there was some power there. Right. You know, demonic or whatever it was, there was power there. So, you know, when God says, I am, I am, do not worship any other God, I mean, there was other power. Oh, yeah. That they, that the Israelites saw. I mean, you sure. know, read the first part of Exodus. Yeah, when the, the, with the magicians. When, yeah, yeah, the magicians threw their staffs yeah. down, mm -hmm. they turned into mm -hmm. snakes. That's power. Mm -hmm. Demonic power. Demonic yeah. power, but it's power. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, yeah, you're right. First Corinthians, first Corinthians 8, 4 through 5. Listen to what Paul says. He's talking about food being sacrificed to idols. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, quote, so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. What's Paul saying? It's a so-called God. It doesn't really have existence. Okay, Galatians 4, 8, Paul says formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Think about that. We could spend a whole night on that verse. Formally, before you were a Christian, what were you enslaved to? What does that text say? Gods. But they weren't really gods. I mean, you were enslaved. Remember, I brought you out of the house of slavery to your idolatry. Okay, so let me give you a quote from um, this book, Kingdom Through Covenant. It's a quote by John Walton, quoted in Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam's Kingdom Through Covenant. I didn't put it on your sheet, but I thought it's a good quote. It says this quote, The first commandment does not insist on the non-existence of other gods, only that they are powerless. In doing so, it disenfranchises them, not merely by declaring that they should not be worshipped. It leaves them with no status worthy of worship. Okay. So let's just ask the basic question. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What does it mean to have no other gods before God? Thomas Watson, Puritan, good book. His book called The Ten Commandments, which I'm reading through and getting some insight because I think they thought deeply about these things. He says this, quote, The Christian having viewed the superlative excellences in God and being stricken with the holy admiration of his perfection, singles him out from all other objects to set his heart upon. That's poetic. What's he saying? Out of all the things in this world that you could set your heart upon, that you can admire, you're stricken with the holiness and beauty of God that you set your highest affection upon, upon him. Okay. So I'm going to give you two ways in which um, people in the past have kind of answered this question. Okay. So... We'll look at the Reformers, those from the Reformation and those from the Puritans, because I think they thought deeply about these issues, okay? So John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he, he says there's four ways we have no other gods. This is kind of his way of categorizing it. I mean, again, this is just a man and his opinion, but I think he helps us to kind of think about this. He, he gives four categories uh, of what, what he believes having no other god 
before God means. He says, number one, adoration. He says, by adoration, I mean the veneration and worship which we render to Him when we do homage to His majesty. So having no other gods before, or having um, no other gods before God means that we adore God. We give Him adoration. Number two, he says, trust. Trust. Trust is secure, resting in Him under recognition of His perfections when ascribing to Him all power, wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth. We consider ourselves happy and having been brought into relationship with Him. So it's not only love, but it's trust. So we not only love God, adore God, but we trust God. And then he says invocation. This is, we would say, prayer, okay? So invocation may be defined the betaking of ourselves to His promised aid as the only resource in every case of need. We, we call upon God in every point of need. We're needy. We call upon Him. And then he says the fourth is thanksgiving, gratitude which ascribes to Him praise of all our blessings. So Calvin would say the way that we have no other gods before God is when we adore God, when we trust God, when we pray to God, and when we give thanks to God. And I would agree with him. I don't think I have any problem with that. He does make a very good point about heart versus outward religion. Listen to this quote he says. The glory of God must be maintained entire and incorrupt, not merely by external profession, but as under his eye, which penetrates the inmost recesses of his heart. It's not just your outward actions or what you say. You can say you have no other God before God, but what's the real issue? Is your heart leading you to that worship? And God sees. Now, Thomas Watson makes it a little bit easier. Thomas Watson gives three areas. He says, and he's close to Calvin, he says, We love Him. When we have no other gods before God, we first of all means that we love God. And, and, and we can get this from Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, 28-30, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now Jesus could have said, The first commandment is, You shall have no other gods before God. What did Jesus do? He said, it's implied in that, but he expands it says, you shall love the Lord. So having no other God besides God is first and foremost when you love God. You adore God. You express your heartfelt passion toward God. This is the positive of the negative that's implied in that law. When you have that, so the, the, the first commandment's negative, right? You shall have no other gods. It's a prohibition. The Shema, Deuteronomy, what, what Jesus said, that's a positive. You shall love the Lord your God. It's not you shall have no other gods. It's you shall love. So in the prohibition of having no other gods, that's a negative. The positive is, okay, what's the positive? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan, says, number one, we love him. Number two, he says, we fear him. Now, let's talk about fear for a moment. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
Now, when we talk about fearing God, are we saying that we shake in our boots and we are worried that He's going to smite us with a lightning bolt and we're cowering? And is that what we're talking about when we talk about fear? Christians fearing the Lord. Okay. What's the parallel? This is a parallelism. Look, 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 look at the psalm, okay? In almost every psalm, you have a parallelism. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth stand in awe of Him. What's the parallel? Fear equals stand in awe. That explains it. What does it mean to stand in awe of God? To be awestruck. To be amazed. He's awesome. Full of, he's, he, he's some awe. He's got some awe in him. Um, a lot of awe. He, he, he's, he's worthy. So we fear, so we love God and we re- have this healthy respect, this fear, this... Um, um, humility towards God. And then number three, Thomas Watson says, ultimately, you trust God. You trust Him. Proverbs 3, 5-6, through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Let me give you a quote that really struck with me at Thomas Watson. This kind of got me convicted. He says this, quote, Many heathens have worshipped their false gods with more seriousness and devotion than some Christians do the true God. Oh, let us chide ourselves. Did I say chide? Let us abhor ourselves for our deadness and formality in religion, how we have professed God and yet have not worshipped Him as God. That's a convicting quote. What's he saying? There are pagans out there that are giving more devotion and more zeal and more love to a false god than we as Christians do the true God. He says that should wake us up, chide us, get our attention. Okay? Now, let me give you an example of a person in the Bible who became an idolater and broke the first commandment. It's kind of good to kind of give you an Old Testament example. Let's talk about Solomon. Now, before we talk about Solomon... Deuteronomy chapter 17 gives laws to Israel about how a king was to function in Israel when they were to have a kingship. So contrary to what you may remember, God had ordained laws for how a king was to be a king even before David and Solomon and and Saul and all of them came on the scene. So what did God say about a king? Deuteronomy 17, 17 through 20. He shall, number one, he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. No multiple wives, no excessive possessions, And most importantly, the king is to have his own personal copy of the Bible, if you will, and his own personal copy of the law next to his throne, and he's supposed to do what with it? Read it every day. Consult it. God's word is to guide how he governs the nation. Because if he accumulates for himself wives, what's going to happen? His heart's going to turn away. 
If he gets excessive silver and gold, his heart's going to turn away. If he does not spend daily time in God's word, getting wisdom to how to lead the country, his heart's going to turn away. What do we find out about Solomon? Let's turn to 1 Kings and find out if he breaks the first commandment. So 1 Kings chapter 9. First Kings chapter nine, four through seven. Make sure I'm there. Nope, eight's a long chapter. Okay. First Kings chapter nine, verses four through seven. And as for you, God is talking to Solomon here. This is God speaking to. to remember Solomon's David's son, the second legitimate king of Israel. And as for you. If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. God gives Sam, Solomon a warning. He basically repeats what Deuteronomy said. Listen, Solomon, things will go good for you and your family in the kingdom if you do what? Obey, love me, honor me. Live according to the law. So starts out well. God specifically comes to him. Okay, let's read 1 Kings 10, 26 through 29. First Kings 10, 26 through 29, one chapter later. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received from Ku at price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and horses for 150. And so the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. What has Solomon acquired for himself? Silver is as common as stone. That's why there's all those movies about King Solomon's mines. They want to find all this money, um, all this gold. Okay, let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Remember Deuteronomy? Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and who were princes and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was his heart of his father David. A thousand women to keep up with. Some of your husbands are like, I can only keep up with one. I can't keep up with the thousand. So Solomon makes an idol out of power, out of pleasure, and out of possessions. And he does not 
love the Lord. Does he love God? Doesn't really show it. Is he fearing God? And ultimately, is he trusting God? He's not trusting God. Okay. Isaiah 42, 8. Listen to what God says. I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Is God going to share his glory with anybody else? That's why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what is idolatry? What's idolatry? Let me give you some definitions, some good definitions. Martin Luther's larger catechism um, focuses on the Ten Commandments. And I think probably Martin Luther probably gives one of the best definitions of idolatry that's really stuck around the past 500 years that I think kind of nails it. So let's, and so does, so does Calvin, some of the reformers. So let's look at Martin Luther. Quote, a God, lowercase, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we're to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him from the whole heart. Whoops. What happened there? Did I lose all those slides? Yes, I did. Let me finish this quote. Is it on your sheet? Okay. As I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, you have no true God. John Calvin said this, The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Daily experience shows that the sinful mind is always restless until it finds something that looks like itself, in which it finds vain comfort as a representation of God. As a result of this blind passion, men have in almost all ages since the world began set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. Perpetual factory of idols. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, let me give you two tests here. Two tests personally for you to evaluate. Are you breaking the first commandment? The first is the love test. The love test. In other words, you ask the question, are you loving anything more than God? What is your heart's affection set upon? Do you adore, love, desire? Where's your heart drawn? If it's anything other than God, loving Him with your whole heart, mind, soul, strength, you're not putting Him as God. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, gives a good definition of, of idolatry. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
So test number one to ask yourself is, do I love anything or anyone more than God? Who's taken the place of God in my heart? The second one's closely related to it, but somewhat different. The trust test. What do we trust or who do we trust besides God? So here's where I'm going to ask some questions for us tonight. What do we trust besides God? There's a lot of things you can trust in. You can trust in your own power, quote-unquote power. Deuteronomy 8.17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.30, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I've done this. Look what I've accomplished. Habakkuk 1.11, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. You have other gods before God when you put trust in your own power to accomplish things. All right, what about putting trust in money and possessions besides God? Job 31, 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence. Or how about Jesus in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Luke 12, 16 through 21. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. You can make, you can trust in yourself. You can trust in money, possessions, or we can make pleasure a God when we love it more than God. Listen to what Timothy says about the last days, which we're living in, obviously. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Let me give you some wisdom from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I'm going to stop there. And we will go on next week. We're going to talk about how Jesus trans. We were going to, if we had time tonight, we'll talk about this next week. How Jesus transforms the Ten Commandments, especially the first commandment, and then some contemporary issues and how 
the church or we can be guilty of breaking the first commandment in some practical ways. So any questions on this so far tonight on the first commandment? The love test, the trust test. What do you love more than God? What do you trust more than God? If it's anything other than God, you're having, an, you're having a God before God, a so-called God, an idol, something you're putting trust in besides Him. Yes, Dick? I think it's okay to recognize that I may have some particular talent or ability At the same time, to remember that it's a gift from God, mm-hmm. to be grateful for it, yes. and contribute to Him uh, glory for it. Yes. And that's a good point. We're not saying that you should never realize that God has gifted you with gifts and talents and abilities to be able to serve Him, and you know, you shouldn't go take pride in your job that you're doing a good job or whatever. But let me give you some a good word from John the Baptist in John chapter 3. I always come back to this. John 3, 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Then later on down in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. So even the gifts, the talents, the abilities, everything you have is given as a gift. And you need to recognize that and use it and glorify God for that, not be ashamed of it. I mean, if you're good at something, don't sit down like, well, I'm not, you know, God's giving me this great gift to make money and I better go around and be poor the rest. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, you, if God's gifted you in a, in, a, in a special way, do it to the glory of God and excel in it, but realize it's God the one that gave you the ability to do that and be humble about it and, and realize that He must increase and you must decrease. So I think that's kind of what you're trying to say, Dick, that you, it doesn't mean we should never recognize what God has given us. It's just we need to recognize it. We don't place our trust and our confidence in the gift. Exactly. We place our trust and our confidence in the giver. Yes. Amen. That's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Yep. All right. You guys ready to go home? Go pick up your kids. All right. And grandkids. <laughs> and pseudo-grandkids. Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and and Lord, we um, are thankful, first of all, that you're the Lord, Yahweh, the God who has no needs, the self-existent God. And Lord, we're thankful that you have rescued us out of slavery to sin. You've rescued us out of the domain of Satan. You've taken us out of spiritual bondage and saved us through Jesus. And you've given us the new covenant in our hearts to be able to obey because we have new hearts, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, you've First of all, tell us to have no other gods before you. And so that means we love you, we fear you, we trust you. And so, Lord, help us this day and and even tomorrow and the rest of this week to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and to place our trust in you. And, And, Lord, make us very aware when we start placing our trust in other places and that we would always come back to you and realize that you are our solid rock and that you are our only refuge. And so, Lord, help us to to worship you above all. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.